You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. It may surprise you to find out that there are only two kinds of people in church. You know what they are? First kind are the ones that like to talk about sin. Second kind are the ones who don't. Now, the first kind are pretty easy to identify because the sin they like to talk about is not their own, it's yours. Most of us fall into the second category. We just would rather not bring it up. Something goes badly, we look the other way. Something, you know, is kind of disturbing and we're uncomfortable and we kind of shove that under the rug and somebody does something and everybody knows but nobody wants to say it and it's kind of an elephant in the room but we just would rather pretend it wasn't there. We don't really like to talk about sin. And so it doesn't come up often in our preaching a lot of times. There's a whole cadre of preachers who are known for never talking about things like sin. And another cadre who sort of in opposition make themselves known by talking primarily about sin or to, to a great extent. And so you kind of see how those different categories flesh out. Well, the reality is, even though it's uncomfortable, if we want to experience God's grace in its deepest possible ways, if we want to experience the fullness of His perfect love for us, then dealing with the reality of our sin is crucial. It is an act of confession to read passages of Scripture that confront us with our darkness and to agree with them. Yes, I am numbered among the sinners. The thing is, when we avoid the topic of sin, our understanding of it and how it is at work and how it is at work in us is impoverished. And when that understanding is impoverished, our ability to do battle against it is weakened. And when we come to the Scriptures, we discover that sin is much more nefarious and much more subtle and much more wicked and much more powerful than we begin to realize if we don't think about it clearly. In fact, you may have noticed the way that Paul talks about sin in these two passages there's, there's a range of ways he can talk about it. We often think about sin as you know, primarily things I do. Have I sinned today? Or did I sin against this person? Or did I commit this sin against God? Or did I do this thing, whatever it is, X, Y, Z? We think of sin primarily as something that we do. But if you read through Romans, you discover that sin is also an agent in itself. He portrays sin as a power, something that makes us captive, something that enslaves us. He can talk about people committing sins in Romans 1, but in Romans 7, he can say things like, sin sprang to life, sin deceived me. Like it's this thing, this power, this force that is acting on me in some way. And so when we come to the Scriptures, we begin to see that maybe this is This is bigger than we realize, and maybe it's just not a matter of how I spoke to my colleague in the office the other day. Maybe there's some greater force that's acting on me, and maybe it's not just my spirit that has a problem. Maybe my spiritual life is deeply related to my embodied life, because after all, that thing I said to my colleague at work the other day, I used my vocal cords, and I used my mouth, and there were certain emotional 
emotions that had certain chemical processes in my brain that were related to how I was feeling. And when my blood pressure went up a little bit and the face turned red, I mean, I began to see, if I reflect on it, that my attitude, sinful as it is, and my speech, sinful as it is, is a deeply physical reality. So maybe the problem's deeper than we real than we thought. Maybe the problem is more powerful than we realized. When we come to Romans, we read through what Paul describes, and we kind of look at the broad span of these things. We discover that sin is not just something we do, it's a power we obey. Like just let that settle in the next time you are tempted to gossip. Or think. Malicious thoughts towards another person. Never articulating, just indulging in the thought. Am I just doing something Or is there a force at work? And what's happening in my life and in my body? Before we can get into those questions, though, we've got to look at some big picture things. And the first big picture thing in Romans, before Paul gets deeply into the reality of sin, he talks about God's work as the creator. Did you notice this when we were reading through this? Before he talks about how humanity has taken creation off the rails and how we have absolutely wrecked God's good world, he talks about the reality that God is the creator and that he makes himself known in the context of the world that he's made. Listen to these words again, Romans 1.19. What can be known about God is plain. Oh yeah, Paul, how is that? Well, take a look around, Paul says. What can be known about God is plain because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, His eternal power, His divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He has made. And Paul here is not coming up with something new. It was a rich tradition all through the Old Testament in the Psalms that the heavens declare the glory of God, that that when we look upon the world that is here, we should say, someone made this. And that someone is powerful and he is infinite and he is good and he is generous because after all he is providing for us and we have food that we can grow and we can eat and we have materials that we can use to build shelter and clothe ourselves and we have a world that has been given to us where we can can engage with one another and and build community and do the work that God has called us to do. He is so kind and he has made himself known. God is a good creator, and he desires to be in relationship with his creation. He's not a creator who just kind of says, all right, I've made this world, and now I'm going back to heaven, and you guys just have at it. I'm not interested in what you're up to. Instead, the image we get here in Romans is of a God who desires to be deeply involved in the life of his people. We're going to find out in just a minute that God has endowed humanity with responsibility, and that our decisions and our behaviors And our sins have consequences. But the reality is, God is not some distant landlord who, you know, 
He's made a place for us to live and then goes back off to another state and you just mail the check every month and you never hear from him and you never see him and and things go badly. He's not involved in the repairs. He's not far away. He's deeply involved in this. The creation reveals his character. It reveals his power. It reveals his glory. It reveals his beauty. And sometimes when we're traveling, I mean, you don't have to travel. You can walk in the backyard, but... It happens more often when we're traveling. Maybe we go and as a family and we're hiking through some mountains or we go exploring, looking for new waterfalls and different state parks, things like that. We just kind of stop for a moment and invite the kids to think about how creative God is. Reflect on that as a family. I would encourage that when you're out, you know, at the lake or you go to the beach, out in the woods, maybe taking a hike, maybe you like to go camping, maybe while you're hunting, you just take a moment and reflect and say, you know, God has made a good world. It is beautiful. Maybe you take a trip up the coast, see the, la- the leaves changing in the fall. How creative is the God we serve that he's built into the rhythms of the world? Not just greenery, but more colors than you can imagine, reds and oranges and yellows and just every year God takes joy in the reality that the forests are aflame with color. What can be known about God is plain to them, plain to us. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power, his divine nature, invisible though they are, and Paul certainly has the opening chapters of Genesis in mind here. God's eternal power, the one who speaks, and things that did not exist suddenly exist. Trees, plants, fish, animals, planets, stars, the Milky Way, the galaxies, things that were not there a moment ago, let there be, and there was. And us, in the middle of it, formed by God's own hand, breathed into life with his own spirit, made to bear his image and all of the responsibility and dignity that comes with that. What can be known about God is plain because God has shown it ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power, His divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that have been made. And for Paul, the crucial question is how are we going to respond to that revelation? God has made himself known. How are we going to respond to that? And there's one of two ways to respond that come up in this text. The proper response is to worship and give thanks. To honor God in the way that he should be honored. In the way that he alone is worthy to be honored. To give him thanks for his provision. To give him thanks for his generosity. To give him thanks for the giving of himself. He makes it, We wouldn't know him if he didn't make himself known. But his desire is to relate to us and to, to give us life. And our posture should be one of gratitude and humility. And the insistence that we do not have life in ourselves, we have it only from Him. The other possible response 
is to exchange what God ought to have for a lie. And to take what belongs to him and give it to something to which it does not belong. Paul says that's the route we chose. Remember, he's talking big picture things here. He's not talking about one person or another person. He's not saying every last person has the same depth or scope of sin. He's saying that humanity as a tendency chooses to worship the self, the creation, over the creator. Hear these words again. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power, his divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. We are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. There's that first option. You could honor him and you could give thanks, but humanity instead did not honor or give him thanks. Instead, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. And here's the crucial thing to see, friends. Worship is not just something that happens for an hour or so on Sunday mornings. Worship is our posture towards the living God. And every day we will either be giving him the glory and thanks that he is due or we will be shifting that over to created things. We probably don't have statues of four-footed animals or reptiles or birds. Well, maybe we do. Look around when you get home and see if you see any of that sort of thing. In our homes, we don't think of ourselves as idolaters. We don't think of ourselves as like statuettes that we bow down before. But the question is, where do we put our energy? Where do we put our glory? What do we give primary worth to? Who gets our best? The living God who made us, loves us, and sustains us, or something created? There is only one sin at the end of the day. And it is idolatry. When we choose our preferences over honoring and giving thanks to God, we worship ourselves, creatures, instead of the creator who alone is worthy of our worship. Everything else flows from that. Covetousness, I want that for me. Who am I worshiping? Me. Deception, I've got to tell this lie so that I don't experience consequences of some other thing. Who am I worshiping? Me. We talked about gossip. I can rationalize this. I can justify it. I'm just letting people know what's going on in the community. At the end of the day, though, I got to be the one that tells the story. I got the scoop. Who am I worshiping? Me. And who gets hurt? Whoever I'm talking about. And me the end of the day, the question is simply, in this moment, am I worshiping God or am I worshiping my preferences? Am I worshiping God? Am I giving thanks to him for his generosity and his benevolence? Or am I worshiping 
myself. And God says, like, nobody gets off with an excuse. If we say, I didn't know God, I didn't know, Paul's answer is, you're just trying to justify your idolatry. Because what can be known about God is, like, walk outside, take a drive, and pay attention to the loveliness of the world that reveals the power. It didn't used to be there. Where did it come from? The Creator. And when we sort of say, well, I didn't know, and we kind of ask these hypothetical questions about people on islands who never hear the gospel, and we kind of, you know, what about people who don't know? And Paul says, the reality is no one really, no one can claim ignorance. Anyone who lives in the world has seen the evidence of God's power in nature. And when we choose idols, we are choosing to resist the worship that God alone deserves. God creates. Humanity must respond to that. And then God responds to our response, doesn't he? And this is where our understanding of sin begins to get a little bit bigger, or maybe a lot bigger than well, I did that thing. Verse 24, after humanity has claimed to be wise, but instead behaved foolishly, did not honor God or give him thanks, became futile in our thinking, claiming to be wise, but became fools. That's verse 22. Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images of created things. Verse 23. Therefore, verse 24, here's God's response. Here's what God does. And we hear this three times, and every time it gets worse. Therefore, God gave them up. God creates a world, we commit idolatry, and God responds to that idolatry. Humanity as a whole. And he gives us up, we are told, to the lusts of our hearts, to impurity, degrading of bodies, and this is because of idolatry. Now, you may ask, like, what in the, like, God gave them, like, does God want more sin? I mean, what's he doing here? It's, I mean, can't he look at our idolatry and look at our sin and just meet that with grace and say, you know what? You know, I'm just going to, let's start over. No worries. Not this time. It, is that the kind of God we want, though? <laughs> Do we want a God who ignores injustice? Do we want a God whose ethics are negotiable? Do we want a God who, well, I don't like it on Tuesday, but Wednesday, you know, maybe we'll let it pass. I mean, just think through the implications of that and say, is that the kind of God I want? Do I want a God whose standards are up for negotiation? And if that's the kind of God you want, it's not the kind of God we have. And what Paul wants us to realize is that there are real consequences. This isn't God going, you nasty sinners, I can't stand you. Bah! This is God saying, if that's the path you choose, there are real consequences. 
If that's the path you choose, there are things that are going to happen. And the image we get is of humanity made in the image of God and entrusted with the good world that God has made. But humanity and rebellion, and when humanity rebels against God, our humanity begins to disintegrate. And we read these passages and we get caught up with what Paul says about impurity and lust and sexuality and these kinds of things. But the image that we get here is when we don't worship the Creator, our relationships are altered. Our rationality, our thinking, our very ability to perceive the world is handicapped. There are real consequences. God has endowed us with responsibility. When we take action, things happen in the world. Not because God is uninvolved, but because he has entrusted something to us. And he expects a great deal from us. We do bear his image after all. But when we, when we withhold from him the gratitude he deserves, that image breaks, it crumbles. And our ability to perceive him, our ability to relate to other people gets warped. And we feel that, don't we? We feel that in a relationship that is tense or maybe estranged, a parent and a child. We feel that in a marriage where there is conflict and tension. We feel that in churches where there is infighting and frustration. We feel that in our society where there is deep conflict and deep division that is thoroughly rooted in self-love self-worship. I'm going to get my way and I don't care who gets hurt. This is where we begin to see also that the more we give ourselves to sin in those practices, the more power it has over us. So Paul can talk about sin in two ways. It is a practice in which we are complicit. I do this, and I'm guilty. Specific things, specific behaviors, and Paul says they committed these acts. They did these sins. They behaved in this way. And that's the typical way we think about sin. You did it. He did it. She did it. But when we hear this language of God gave them up, it sounds like there's something bigger going on, right? There's this, there's this slavery that's coming, coming, right? Because you start out with just sort of broken relationships and broken sexuality and, 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 and darkened minds, but that, that goes into even more unnatural expressions of human sexuality and even more passions that conflict with God's good design and things that sort of take His good creation that involves complementarity and diversity and and, and, and love given towards another, one who is unlike me, and that's exchanged for self-love and pursuing one who is like me, not distinct from me. And he calls these shameless acts, and he says 
that there's this, you just get this image of this continuing deeper, deeper, deeper darkness. And it's not simply a fact that you did it and it's bad. God says, if that's the path you choose, you get all the nasty consequences that come with it. The depravity is greater and bigger and worse and more horrible and more unhuman and more disintegrating than you can even begin to imagine at this point. Sin is a practice in which we are complicit. It is also a power to which we are captive. This is especially clear in Romans 7 that we just read. Romans 7 is a tough text, but you need to know that Paul is kind of taking on a character. He's not speaking as himself, he's speaking as Adam. It was a common technique in ancient rhetoric. It's kind of like uh, maybe you've seen a comedian impersonate somebody and they shift their voice a little bit. You know, that's a good impersonation, I know what you're talking about. Paul is impersonating Adam. The way we know that is because there's only one person in the history of the world who can say, I was once alive apart from sin, apart from the law. Who's the one guy who experienced life in this world without the problem of the sinful nature, who without the problem of of boundaries initially? Adam. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Some of the ancient Hebrew commentators said the real issue in the garden was covetousness. Adam looked at that fruit and said, I want it. It doesn't belong to me, but I want it. He says, I wouldn't have known what that was like if the law hadn't said don't do it, but now God's gone and said don't do it, now I'm doing it, I want it. Sin, he says, as a power, as an agent, as a force that makes a slave of me, seizes the opportunity in the commandment and produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, I was once alive. Right? Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. I can't say that, and you can't say that. <laughs> like We come into the world dead. Adam, it wasn't the case with him. So Paul's kind of stepping into the character, and he's in, you can kind of, maybe, maybe if he were reading this to us, he'd have a voice for this part, and it would be an easy, easier for us to see that. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment that promised life became death to me. Sin, again, it sounds like it's this thing, it's this force, like it's this, this power that's at work. Sin sees the opportunity. It's not just something I do, it's something that's taking advantage of a situation. It's a power that requires obedience. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That is Adam's story And he unleashed into the world a darkness that we have all been susceptible to from the start ever since. And apart from the grace of God, we find ourselves in that dark spiral. Image-bearing creatures who fall further and further. And Paul is an equal opportunity condemnation kind of guy. Again, we read these passages and we kind of grab the big sins that everybody wants to talk about, you know. 
depraved sexuality or something. And that's where we focus. But if we keep reading, he's got a lot of other things that he wants to talk about here. Things we'd rather him not talk about, but he does anyway. If you get past all of the kind of kind of sins to get the headlines, if you get past that kind of thing and you get to verse 28, you find these words, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. A debased mind to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness. You think, all right, I'm, I'm still okay right now. You know, I'm not filled with every kind of wickedness, am I? Well, evil. You think, all right, it's okay. Those, you know, there's some things he's mentioned earlier. I haven't gotten that far. I haven't committed those kinds of sins. And then he says this covetousness thing. You think, oh, because when, who among us hasn't desired something that belongs to someone else? I mean, after all, Facebook makes tons and tons and tons of money in ads trying to provoke covetousness in us, doesn't it? Driving down the road, on your way to church. You may not all pass billboards on your way to church, but some people do, so just keep this in mind. Get, go work with me here. If you live that way, you may not see a billboard. If you live that way, you may. So you just kind of keep that in mind. But you're driving along, you're just minding your own business, you're trying to get where you need to go, maybe go to church, and then there's a boom, billboard. You've been wanting that truck. You've been wanting it. Paul is an equal opportunity kind of guy, isn't he? Malice. How easy it is to hide that sort of thing. You're at work. You find out your boss has been talking about you behind your back. Other employees. First you feel betrayed and then you just kind of start wanting revenge. Then you start making that plan, how you can subvert and undermine. That malice starts out small and just kind of ratchets up, and you can feel it rising in your chest, can't you? Malice. Envy. Why can't I have his life? Murder, well, we're probably okay there, but he's got, us by, <laughs> he's got us by now, so it doesn't really matter. Strife, we've all been in committee meetings where there was that one person who always just had to, oh, we were doing well until you said that, and you just seem to take absolute joy in creating strife wherever you go, and don't look around, because, you know, but. Like, this isn't just, well, that person's a sinner, and that person did that thing, and I'm okay. Paul has a list here of sin after sin after sin, of just this brokenness and this depravity and this, this pain. I mean, and we, we've talked about gossip. It's on the list. Everyone's done it. Haughty, boastful. Let me talk about myself for a little while, please. 
rebellious toward parents. Like, see, you got a list that starts with sins related to, like, sexuality, and you wind up with rebellious towards parents. They're on the same list. He pulls no punches. Now, here's the crucial thing, friends. Here's the crucial thing. When we read these lists, we should not go, I know that person. (laughs) We should go, I know that person. These lists are not stones to throw. They are diagnostic tools for us. Because if we start throwing stones, we'll all be dead very shortly. Like no, I hope it's clear, nobody escapes from this. Nobody gets to say, I'm all right, I'm good. And if you read this list and you go, hey, I'm all right, I'm good, you're not paying attention. Like if you read it with your eyes open, you experience conviction. The list is a diagnostic tool. Now, we need to understand a few things about how God has made us. One of the things I've learned over the last few months with our focus group and through some of the programming that we've done uh, through the Creation Project is something called Hebb's Axiom. Anybody know this one? I figured a couple of you would remember it. It was in one of those books that we read. Hebb's Axiom says this, neurons that fire together wire together. You remember that? You may not remember Heb, but you can probably remember neurons that fire together, wire together. What's a neuron, preacher? Neurons are the cells in our brain, spinal cord, in our uh, neuron, neural system. And when we do things, they shoot this little electric charge back and forth between each other. And when we do that same thing the next day, those same neurons shoot some more charges and they strengthen their bond. You do that same thing the next day, and those neurons strengthen those charges. They, or they, shoot, the, those electro, they shoot that electric signal again, and the, the, the bond strengthens. You know, so you pick up that first cigarette. A little while later, you want another one. It's not just the nicotine. There are pathways in your brain that are appearing that weren't there a few days ago. And in a couple of weeks, after a couple more packs, those pathways will be a lot stronger. And you'll be addicted. And you'll feel like there is a power at work in your life that you cannot escape. It's just one example. There are infinite examples of how those kinds of things work. Works that way with our phones, actually, also. You get up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? After six months of grabbing a cell phone the first time, the first thing you do, imagine how strong those bonds are between those neurons in your brain. Is this healthy? Probably not. Is it reality? Absolutely. And so there's this dynamic that we see in Paul where there are sins, there are things we do and we commit them and we're culpable for that and we're complicit, but the more we do it, 
the more it becomes a power in our life. And Paul wasn't a neuroscientist, and I'm not a neuroscientist, but there's an analogy here where if we give ourselves to certain destructive behaviors, whatever they are, like pick anything on the list, whether it's the big bad ones or the little ones, you know, like just mouthing off to your mom and your dad, whatever it is, right? Mom and dad probably don't think that's little, but, you know, some, other, some people may. Whatever they are, if it's a habit, if it's a practice continuing and continuing, my body actually changes to reinforce those habits. And sin isn't just a spiritual reality that's, that doesn't have any relation to my brain or my body or my arms and legs and my neurons and my all of those things. Sin becomes this deeply ingrained part of my biology and I feel its force. Try it sometime. Next time you are inclined to spend way more time than is holy on a device. Just put it down for an hour. I mean, what? just take a second and think about this for a minute. We're going to talk more about electronics and devices in weeks three, I think. But I just want to kind of help us start thinking through this, right? Does anyone think it's a good idea to spend eight hours a day looking at a screen? How many of us do it? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll raise mine. But, like, we do, don't we? Whether it's a TV, whether it's a computer, sometimes it's at work, we get off work, we, like, you know, we're driving. I mean, how many times are you driving down the road and you see somebody in their car? You know? Like, clearly that's not safe or healthy. Right? But when you're addicted, you do things that are irrational. Right? And so, so just take something that it's not, and is it sinful to have a cell phone? Of course not, right? Mine's over there. I don't think it is anyway. Maybe. I, but just, here's this thing. It's in our lives, and it's always in our lives, and it has us in its grip, and we don't even notice it most of the time. Like, just try to cut it off for a couple of hours this afternoon and see what happens. And when you do, pay attention to how you feel. Or if you're sitting at lunch with your family, and maybe it's on, uh, you know, it's probably on the table with you, Stick it on the coffee table or in another room, and when you hear it buzz, don't go get it for 15 minutes. Point made, right? And then, during that 15 minutes, pay attention to how you feel. You will feel anxiety. I wonder what somebody liked. It's in my new profile picture. We can make it holy. Maybe you shared the sermon and somebody commented on it. That's good, right? You got to go see what they said about the sermon or so, you know, if it's a good thing, you know. This one, probably it's going to be all bad. Thumbs down, right? But like, pay attention to how you feel. I really want to know. I really want to see that update. Push notifications. It's buzzing at me. My phone is blowing. Like, you take 15 minutes, you'll probably have your whole little, little bar at the top will be full. Pay attention to how you feel. And then ask yourself, like, is this how God designed me to live my life? Is this healthy? Is this a good thing? My phone is an incredible tool. I miss far fewer appointments now than I did before I had one. <laughs> I keep up with my mileage much easier now than I did when I, like, I, before I had a, a smartphone, I had, like, sticky notes in my car and, like, hospital and five miles and it was a disaster and I 
couldn't keep up with that sort of thing. And now it's just, there's an app for that. Good tool, really helpful. And that's great. As long as the danger can be mitigated. This is a conversation we have in our home. Don't have all the answers. Haven't always been successful. Not going to pretend that I have been. But we've got to raise the question, don't we? Sin is a, pow- a, sin is a practice that I'm complicit in. I'm going to give myself to this thing, whatever it is. Whether it's a phone, whether it's covetousness, whether it's gossip, I'm going to give myself to it. And I'm going to give myself to it later today, and then I'm going to give myself to it tomorrow, and then I'm going to give myself to it again and again and again and again. And before you know it, I'll be hooked. And I'll feel the power of that thing acting in my body. And I'll discover in my experience that sin is not just something I do, it's a power I obey. Is it worse than you thought? Yeah, probably so. There's good news, friends. Good news comes in Romans 5. You hear about sin, the power again, in verse 21. Just as sin exercised dominion, power, ruler, rulership, authority. That's what that word dominion means. Just as sin exercised authority in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 20, the law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied. Here's the good news. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. sin increased grace super abounded so you remember that later today when you're saying no to whatever it is and that anxiety is rising in your chest you remember that where sin increased grace abounded all the more And as bad as it is, and as nasty as it is, and as all-encompassing as it is, God in his kindness has not given up on us. My heart is darker than any of us have begun to imagine, and yours is too. And the light and the love of Jesus' perfect grace is brighter than any of our darkness. And we need to be thinking about how bad it is for us. And we can go days, weeks perhaps, without stopping to consider how far we have fallen and how deeply our depravity runs. And we can just zone out on those things because they're right there. And we can scroll and pass the time and we don't have to think about what's doing to us and how, how, how detached we are and how unengaged we are. We don't have to think about those things and we can just, we can just self-medicate in that way 
Or we can stop and we can open the Scriptures and we can hear what God has to say about our hearts and how bad it's gone off the rails and what a mess we've made of it. And then in that moment of just this depth of darkness, we can see the absolute beauty of His perfect love break through like the sunrise over a dark morning comes and illumines the day and brings warmth and brings wholeness. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And it was costly to him. He took his blood and his death. My sins, they are many. Mercy is more. His mercy is powerful enough to set us free from that captivity. Really and truly free. So that we don't have to do the things that increase our slavery. His mercy is able. His grace is powerful. God's grace is not just the syrup that kind of looks the other way when we transgress. His grace comes to us and says, let's face the facts. Let's pay attention to reality and let me make you whole. Let me heal you. Let me make you fully human. Let me restore the image. You're going to have to deal with all the junk. And it's not going to feel good right now. But the end result is so worth it. The question is, brothers and sisters, do we want You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.